Bible reading today is taken from Luke 14, chapter 14, starting from verse 25 to 35, found on page 1048. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the, for the manure heap. It is thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Please keep your Bibles open. Thanks, Rona. Now, I think the children are going to go out to their little group, and um, uh, we'll just let them leave before we carry on. Ready? Well, we start then, and let me ask not a leading question, but a lead-in question to get into the passage. How much do you value what Jesus has done for you? Now, I apologize. That sounds like a very churchy kind of question to ask, and it can be off-putting, so let me explain the reason why I'm asking it. How much do you value uh, the Lord Jesus? It's just that there's a crowd in uh, chapter 14, verse 25. And if you ask them, how much do you value Jesus? They would have said, well, fair amount. We think he's important. That's why we're here. There's a crowd of us. But Jesus seems to be pushing them. A little bit further. Yeah, but how important? Important enough to put me in front of the family? Important enough even to die, if you have to? That's the question. How important do you think Jesus is? You've got to answer that if you're going to work out if you're going to go that far. And reading over this verse, it sounds like Jesus just simply wants us to read the small print of a contract before we sign up to follow him. But I think that behind what seems to be a contract-type passage is the searching question, how much do you really value him? Because... If 
his value isn't that big, then the cost of uh, valuing him and following him will be an obstacle. Uh, it's just a bit like Debbie's mother buying uh, a car. We didn't do the auction thing. Um, uh, she knew where she was getting it from. And when she drives it back to her home in uh, Shropshire, uh, do you think if a neighbor comes along and says, uh, Norma, I see you've got a new car, that immediately the face would go as long as a fiddle and say, do you know how much I had to pay for that? <laughs> My guess is that she'll say, you won't believe it. This is actually a new car. It's eight years old, but it's only down 9,000 miles. And you look at the inside of it and you wonder if anyone's ever done anything significant and traveled anywhere. It's the joy of what you've got that is going to be foremost in your mind. If the cost is foremost in your mind, you don't think you've got such a good deal. Now, it's the same with Jesus. If you think he's valuable, then the cost will never come into it. If you don't think he's that attractive, the cost will make you pull back. And so Jesus, to help the crowd think through all of that, what it really means to follow him, he tells them three things, which I think will also help us today. The first thing that he tells us in this passage is about loving him the most. Really, verses 25 to 27 makes that point. Now, verse 26 sounds very drastic. Uh, when it seems to say, uh, you've got to hate your family if uh, you want to follow Jesus and be his disciple. It sounds like that's what he's saying, but that's not how they would have heard it. You know, sometimes we can say things which seems a bit striking, but it's not how people hear it. So if I was to say to you, I would kill for an Indian takeaway... I hope you realize that uh, I haven't got murder on my mind. It's just that I wouldn't mind a takeaway. I'd quite like one. Okay? So me saying I'll kill doesn't actually mean what it says. And when Jesus says, hate your parents, that's not how they would have heard him because they would also have heard him say, love your enemies. In other words, Jesus is not wanting us to hate anybody, not even them. When he says hate them, he's really saying love them less. And it's relevant for us and for them. Because often if you're going to follow Jesus, the first buckets of cold water are likely to come from your family. And uh, they're going to think that you're very strange. And that's why I wanted you to uh, look at... Uh, uh, Mark chapter uh, 3 um, and um, uh, uh, it's okay uh, Dorothy please we'll, we'll, we'll get on with it uh, Mark chapter 3 and uh, have a look at the way Jesus had trouble with his family so if you look at Mark uh, chapter 3 verse 21 you see how uh, 
uh, it says, when his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he's out of his mind. Uh, they thought he was nuts. I know that uh, people make a big thing about how Mary, the mother of God, was always a great devoted. She thought her son was nuts at the very beginning. But when they went to get him, when they finally arrived, they're setting off in verse 21, and they finally get to Jesus uh, in uh, verse 34 and verse 35. And so, verse 31, then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Obviously, they've come to take him back because they think he's mad. Uh, standing outside, they sent someone in to call him, and a crowd was sitting around him, and he told them, or they told him rather, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Instant, it's very interesting, but I think the Roman Catholic Church say that uh, Jesus, Mary was always a virgin. Uh, the Bible tells us that uh, Jesus had brothers, so she wasn't. Uh, and uh, verse 33, Jesus asks, who are my mother and my brothers? Verse 34, then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. So, Jesus, with his own family, had people who poured cold water on him at the start. And he had to say to them, no, my priority is God's will, not the pressure that my family are putting on me. Now, that's what Jesus is talking about here as well. He's not talking about hating his family, although, isn't it true that often our family misconstrue and say, actually, we do hate them. They say, oh, you hate us. Ever since you become a Christian, you've always started going to church. You don't join in the family lottery ticket or whatever it is. You don't play the game anymore the way we used to. You know how family know how to push the buttons to make you feel bad. And none of them actually understand how, since you become a Christian, you've served them more and loved them more. That isn't seen. But the criticism comes uh, ever more strongly. And in those moments, we're going to buckle unless we think through the huge love the Lord Jesus has for us and primarily as we think about how he loved us on the cross. And as we understand not what we have got to do to follow him as his disciples, but understand what he has done for us in this huge life-changing, eternity-transforming way, his universal, uh, 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 the largeness of his love for us. As we understand his love for us, then the family pressures that uh, draw us uh, away from him uh, will take their uh, rightful place. So when Jesus talks about uh, how his uh, family, how uh, uh, father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, they're all the different pressure groups that could take Christians away from him.
but his love comes first because he has loved us so much. Yes, even their own life. Now that's interesting, is it? Because when Jesus talks about losing his life in verse 27, we suddenly understand it's real for him to take up the cross. And if you were going anywhere following Jesus with a cross, you know you're going to end up in a sticky end. Now, we might think that death by ISIL or ISIS or IS, whatever they call themselves, we might think that that's pretty terrifying to have a knife through your, to your throat. But death by crucifixion was always, always worse. Why is it that Jesus was willing to go to the cross? Well, there is a passage that tells us why in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, if you want to jot that down in your notes, but I'll tell you what it is. It says, Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. In other words, he had God's eternity in front of him. That's what he looked at as he endured the cross. He put in front of himself God's eternal future. So our willingness to die for him, whether it's at the hands of ISIL or anything else, whatever sacrifice is required, it really hangs on whether we really believe that there is joy in front of us in God's eternal future. Once we understand the eternal future of God in front of our eyes, then the death threat has less power, just like the family has less power when we understand his love ahead of theirs. So we love him the most. That's what discipleship is about. It's not so much that we then grit our teeth and follow, but that we understand the magnitude of what he has done on the cross and setting in front of us his future. Secondly, we need to count correctly. That's in verses 28 to 33. When you count the cost of something, you're evaluating if it's worth it or not. And at first sight, it seems that what Jesus says about the tower and what Jesus says about this king facing an army and um, counting up the numbers, at first sight, both those little stories seem like that they are saying the same thing. Do your calculations very carefully before you follow Jesus. Well, yes, they do make that point, but I think they are two different stories because they are making that point in two different ways. When it comes to the tower, it's just simply a matter of don't start. If it's obvious, you won't be able to complete because you'd only look silly. So if, for example, you say you want to become a Christian, but you know in your heart of hearts there is some person who has done you harm that you will never want to forgive them, if that is that from the very beginning, don't begin because you won't be able to see it through to the end. Don't start to follow Jesus if you know at the beginning that you'll only be going halfway until your views clash with his. And then the tower 
is unfinished. So the Tower episode, if you like, is asking us the question, look, can you afford to follow Jesus? But the king story, I think, is making a different point. The king story says, be careful before you take on a greater king, at which point you will lose with your 10,000 if you're going up with someone who's got 20. Now, I wonder if this is the other side of the coin. If Jesus is the greater king heading our way, then do we really want to be found fighting against him and not on his side when he comes? Isn't it wiser for us to make peace with him before we're face to face? So if the tower question is, can you afford to follow Jesus? The king question is, can you afford not to follow Jesus? Not to make peace with him. Do both calculations very carefully and make a wise decision. That seems to be what Jesus is saying. Now can you see from that that following Jesus is never a rash, spur-of-the-minute thing where the Christian speaker is engaging, the atmosphere is special, the music is emotional, and you're caught up in the moment. Now it's very easy, isn't it, to have an evening like that and for the Christian minister to say, if you say this prayer, you will become a Christian and from then on, heaven is yours. I don't think Jesus does that. When a person stands up to follow Jesus, you know what he says in verse 28? He says, sit down, consider. Again in uh, verse 31, sit down, think carefully. What will it cost you if you do? What will it cost you if you don't? Counting correctly is important. And we need to get our thinking caps on rather than get emotional. And then third, giving up everything in verses 33 to 35. And I think what Jesus is talking about here about giving up everything and uh, particularly um, you, if you, verse 33, if you uh, don't give up everything, you can't be my disciple. I wonder if I can suggest it's a bit like this, that Christian, Christianity and being a disciple of Jesus is much more like a marriage than joining a social club. You might join a social club because you think exercise is good for you, and therefore you want to do a little bit more of it than you have been doing until now, and you might get yourself a personal trainer, but once you leave the gym door and go into the office, well, the gym is a separate world, isn't it? The office and everything else in life is not the gym. And you've got to live it in a different way. The gym is just one part. Whereas marriage is not an establishment where you can do that. You can't say, right, we've had our little lovely married dinner, our candlelit dinner for two. Right now, that, that's over. I think I'll go and um, have a holiday somewhere exotic. And when I come back, I think I'll go and buy a different house, 
I have a different place to live. You can't do that. Every single decision you make when you're married is joint. You can't say, right, okay, there's one decision I make by myself and another decision where uh, I might just consult. It's all bound up together. Everything is done with the other person in mind. And that's the same way it is with discipleship, and verse 33 is particularly talking about money. We can't say, right, okay, I'm going to give one-tenth of my money, the Bible calls it tithe, and then after that the rest of the money is mine, I can walk out the door and spend it on whatever I please. No, every single thing I do with the rest of my money is also part of my discipleship. See, if I want to go and buy that house that I was talking about, well, I don't just simply make a decision by myself. I need to consider, as part of my discipleship, how will I serve Jesus in this decision? It'll affect where I live. It'll affect what sort of house I buy. It's not that, okay, I've given a part of my money to God, now therefore I'm... free and easy but the rest no all of it is what I now use with him in mind so verse 33 is not saying that I lose possession of my money but it means that I lose ownership of my money in the sense that I now use my money as part of my discipleship and I'm with the Lord Jesus and all those decisions that I need to make and consult him, do it for him. So my discipleship affects every single spending decision I make, not just the tithe. It all points to how much I value Jesus, like I said at the start. Because the reality is that if Jesus is all I have, it's then that I discover that Jesus is actually all I need. because he provides me for everything in every way. That's why someone once said that being saved by God's grace is a lot more scary than being saved by works. If you're saved by works, you have a checklist of things that God wants you to do, you take them all off, and that's it. Your discipleship is complete. When you're saved by grace, and God has given you absolutely everything in huge abundance, then the only right response to grace is to live our lives as if God owns us. That's what a discipleship means. That's what a disciple does. And that's what makes a disciple salty in verse 34. Now it's possible that we think we can influence the world by becoming like the world. In other words, people will look at us and think, oh, they're just like us. We've got nothing to worry about them. And therefore, we're happy to become Christians like them. The reality is that when we live like that, like everybody else, they might commend us for doing that, but they won't become Christians. It's only when we live as if the ownership stamp of Jesus is on us, as if actually our discipleship of Jesus covers every area of our lives, and we want to live as if he owns us. Only then will our saltiness be so distinctive that others want to turn their heads and have a look and say, boy, this is different. 
Here is a person who is possessed by God. As opposed to possessed by their possessions, which is the alternative. If we don't hand over all we have to God as part of our discipleship of him. Well, if that's not clear, you might be able to uh, uh, come back and ask some searching questions. Let me just wrap up by saying, what does that mean for us? Especially if you're here first time or new and you're wondering what Christianity is all about. You've come because maybe Christianity, uh, because uh, curiosity has brought you in. And the key thing to remember is that if you're going to come and think through following Jesus, you will need to think. It's not a spooky business. You won't see lights flashing in the sky. The becoming Christian is actually a matter of thinking carefully. What if you do become a Christian? How will it change you? And can you afford not to become a Christian if there's a king on his way? Maybe if you're churchy and you're experienced with going to services like these, can you see that being part of the crowd around Jesus isn't the same as being his disciple? It's possible for our Christianity to look much more like going to a sports club and the gym, whereas real discipleship is much more like a marriage where everything is for the one that we love. Remember, it's the crowd around Jesus that Jesus tells three times how they cannot be his disciple. Uh, they, they, they cannot follow him unless they are willing to be a disciple in this kind of way. It may be that you are a disciple and want to be. And then the invitation, I think, after this passage is keep in front of you all the time just two things. One what he did for you on the cross to what he has put in front of you in terms of the future. If our discipleship is going to be sorted, these are the two things that are going to regulate us, control us, consume us. And loving him for those two things will bring us to handle the discouragements that may come from family, that may come from finance and that may even come from your own funeral if you have to die as you follow him. Let me stop there and we'll pray and then handle your questions that you might want to ask. Father, we thank you that when the Lord Jesus is all we have, we discover that he is all that we need. Please help us to be disciples of Jesus that love him, whatever the cost, so that we might be like salt, full of flavor, distinctive, attractive, and loving him to be living like him. For the glory of his name we pray. Amen.